Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's an honor to, to share this, uh, this pulpit this morning. And uh, there's, there's so many things I'm supposed to say, uh, but before I get to any of those things, uh, I just wanted to just, uh, just share a very, very heartfelt thank you on behalf of Amber and I and our family for lifting up Kylie in the last, last couple of days here. Uh, for those of you that uh, were not in the know, I think most of you were because I got... By the way, if you don't get like a reply to I'm praying for you, my, I did see it and I appreciate it. I still appreciate that encouragement. I may not, uh, we may not get to replying to all of the words of encouragement, but I, I know everybody's praying because we got so many and I'm so thankful for that. So thank you so much uh, just for praying for Kylie. For those of you that don't know, uh, Kylie had uh, two brain surgeries over this last weekend here. One of them planned, one of them not. And uh, it's a little, little dodgy for a bit there, but we really appreciate just the, uh, the church family uh, lifting us up and lifting her up. And uh, she is doing wonderfully this morning. Had a great uh, conversation with the neurosurgical team as they did their rounds this morning. And she is, uh, she is pain-free and headache-free and alert and oriented this morning and doing very well. So... Thank you so much. We really, really do appreciate it. And um, yeah, and she, uh, you know, so, you know, she'll, she'll be in observation today and then uh, we will continue her treatment on Monday. But, you know, they want to give her brain a good day to rest after everything that just, just happened. So, uh, so that's what they're going to do. And, um, you know, this is, you know, a weird part of it, but, you know, best time to, to say this. So one thing I will say just is, as our family kind of gets back into the rhythm of things around here, um, we, we are naturally pretty, like, you know, high-touch, huggy people in our family. Um, over the next four to six weeks, if, um, you know, you reach out for a handshake or a hug and you feel like we are pretending it's COVID all over again and running away from you, uh, it's not because we don't love you, and it's not because that's not who we are, and we'll probably... You know, six weeks from now, we'll probably be full of all kinds of hugs and things like that. Uh, one of the biggest, in fact, the biggest risk to Kylie postoperatively uh, will just be infection. Uh, so generally speaking, 40% of the surgery, the surgery she had, 40% of those surgeries fail uh, within the first year uh, simply because of an infection. And so Kylie has about a six-week window where we have to be very cautious. So she won't be going out or doing anything. So, anyway, so if I see you in the hallway uh, and you're like, hey, you know, like it might be like, you know, it's a, I love you so much, um, but just just so you like, it's not personal. I don't think you're like dirty or something gross like that. You know, there's nothing nothing going on there. But um, but no, thank you so much. And uh, you know, it's it's interesting. There's it's not often you get such a perfect uh, illustration from the, from the sermon the week before. And you know, last week Bobby was talking about community, one of the values of the, the the church family. And so we are so appreciative for this community and just to see those values actually lived out, those values and actions, that when we do this series, this core series, uh, th these are not just aspirational values of who we hope to be, uh, they're actually also the values of who we are, and uh, we're very, very thankful uh, for them. So anyways, there you go, that's it, that's the, up to, hope that's good. By the way, if we haven't met yet, I'm Ryan, I don't work here, so if you're trying to figure out... <laughs> 
who even are you? Like, why are you here? Um, I'm, one of the, I'm one of the professors at our Bible college, but this is our home church, and um, uh, planted ourselves here when we moved back from uh, the West Coast uh, to be a part of this church, and thankful for this community. So we're going we're gonna to continue this, this series on these core values, these C-O-R values, and I get the fun thing of talking about the letter O in the, the core values, and you know, one of the things that that I was, I was just thinking about uh, just a, a little bit ago is, you know, you kind of do this post-COVID reflection where you just say, what on earth just happened, right? I don't know if anyone else has had this thing where you think back to something from 2019 and, you know, you're, we were, Amber and I would be having conversations and we'd just be like, oh yeah, that must have been like, what, like 10, 10, 12 years ago? And we, you know, we kind of look at it like, oh no, no, that was like, it's <laughs> like three years ago. And, and you just realize, like, everything, I don't know if anyone else has this, but, like, everything else in your mind is, like, it's, like, everything before, during is just pure trauma. We just, we block that out. Like, there's no memories during. And now afterwards, you're like, when was that? And, and so, you know, we started thinking about it a little bit, though. Like, what is it going to be like, like, when my kids, especially, like, AJ's, our youngest, like, when he is in, when he's in, like, social studies class in high school, He's going to be reading some, like, textbook about, like, oh, yeah, the great pandemic of, like, like this is going to be there. And, and I was thinking how strange it's going to be and, like, how do you do that? And then I sometimes have this game that I play, which is bizarrely dysfunctional, so excuse it. But I try to come up with, like, chapter titles for, like, what life is like. Is that you do this? Like, that chapter was called as if I was important enough to have, like, a, you know, a documentary made about my life or something. And so that chapter, so I was thinking about like, what is the chapter? And what I was thinking about is in this first section, post-COVID, right after, I kind of feel like the chapter title would just be, someone really needs to do something about this. I think that's going to be the, the, the title of the book, of the history book of, of what it is. Um, and, and I came up with this title very scientifically, by the way. Um, mostly it was just because I was complaining and in a bad mood. But anyways, but this is how I came up with this title is that I realized that just up until just recently, like, re- like weeks ago, you know, every time I went to the gas pumps to fill up my car, like I, I didn't even realize my filling up. And first thing I would say is like, well, someone needs to do something about this. <laughs> like literally, I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, none of the kids are going to college. Like the fund is just going right into the gas tank. And you know, we're like, sorry kids, it's, it's gonna be a good life, not anymore. Um, and then I, last week, I went to the grocery store, and I went to the store to, to buy muffins, like just, just muffins, and like not that I actually need to be eating more muffins, and don't judge me, okay? Like, don't be like, you're going for muffins, huh? You going to the gym too? Well, you know, like, well, well here's the thing. I, I went to the store to get muffins, and I'm like, this is like basic, right? There, there, was, there was no muffins. Guys, like, there was no muffins. Like, I mean, I went, like, in the little bakery section, and it wasn't like, and, you know, I was prepared to fight for it. I was, I didn't know if I was going to be like, oh, where's the muffins? And, you know, there'd be, like, you know, some elderly lady who had a grocery cart full of muffins. And I think my distraction came is pretty strong, so I could have been like, be like, hey, look, there's a sale on zucchini. So, you know, like, we, we could have done that. But, but no, there was actually a sign, and it just said, due to supply shortage of blah, 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 we don't have any muffins right now. And I don't know if you've ever stood in a grocery store and just had, like, your hopes and dreams entirely shattered because you're craving the food you're there to buy. Like, maybe it's just a me problem. Uh, but anyways, 
do you know, you know what I said when this happened? Someone needs to do something about this. Like, and then, and, and I thought this next problem, I actually thought it was a post-COVID problem, and I even put it in my message to point it out and complain about it publicly, and then found out later, this may not actually be a post-COVID problem, it's just a Peterborough problem, so I don't know, I'm still new here. But then I had this thing the other day, I was trying to drive through Peterborough, and it's kind of like, <laughs> like when you were a kid, did you ever do go-karts where it's like obstacles, you know, you're just like, ooh, kind of going, like I'm in the same lane and I'm, I'm weaving in my lane because there's just potholes, like, it's like, oh, welcome to Park Hill Road. No, I think you mean Pot Hill Road. We could just rename that um, because... And, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, that's not even a pothole, that's a cave. Like, National Geographic is going to explore that in next month's issue and tell us about all the things they found in it. And I'm just, I'm like, looking like, this is it. And of course, what are the words that come out of my head? Somebody needs to do something about this. Record-setting inflation, someone needs to do something about this. And then, listen, we're going to go to all the sore spots. I'm sitting in church a few Sundays ago. I know. It's like that's when the congregation perks up and all the staff are like, dear God, where, where is he going with this? So I'm sitting in church a few Sundays ago. And like two of the best pastors I know are like, yeah, God told us to move to Barry. Now God bless them. They're having their first Sunday there and they have my full support, but I'm a little bitter. And I go, somebody needs to do something about this. This is, the thing is, this has been the most common thought in my mind for the whole last year. Everything is just, someone needs to do something about this. And, and I don't know, is anyone else having that kind of a year at all? Some of you are just like, no, I'm doing great. You have so many problems. Like, I don't know. But probably we are, because I think we, we do tend to hit a frustration point. And I think that if we're willing to be honest, like if we were willing to take the lid off of the box and really just talk about the hard things, someone needs to do something about this is not a, just a phrase for the trivialities of, of high gas prices or there's no muffins at the grocery store. I think as Christian people, we actually know more than we often let on about heartbreak. I think that as we watch this war in the Ukraine rage on, and then we catch like news stories about orphan children and hospitals that don't have even basic supplies, I think something that we all tend to think is we're like, okay, no, like for real, though, like something, someone needs to do something about this. And when we catch a news headline that, you know, just talks about low-income families in our city, in our community, being hit so hard by inflation. They say things like, you know, the average family of four has to choose between, like, you know, buying milk and putting gas in the car to go to work. And, and we look at that and we think about that hardship and we think about moms and dads who are trying to work through this. And, you know, we, we tend to say, we're like, okay, someone actually does need to do something about this. Or maybe it's very personal, you know, we hear a coworker talk to us about the end of their marriage and their battle with depression, and it's going to be six months on a wait list to see a therapist just to talk about this, and it's so difficult. We hear those stories, and we, see, we, go, but we go home, we're driving in our car, and we say, we say well, you know, someone, someone needs to do something about this. And I think one of the biggest difficulties that we have as followers of Jesus 
is trying to reconcile in our minds the reality of a God that we personally know who has changed our lives with, the, um, with just incredible, incredible moments of grace. And we try to reconcile, well, this is what God has done in my life, and I know that, and I'm confident in that, but how do I reconcile that with the immensity of the suffering that I see in a world that seems like it's entirely out of control? And this is the struggle. And so, in fact, one of the, one of the biggest questions I think we end up asking, I mean, like, you know, we can, we can encourage each other with joyful songs, we could try to not think about it, but at the end of the day, we will ask this singular question. We will ask, okay, so really... Like, for real, though, like, what is God's plan to fix this? What is God's plan to make a difference in this area? He's God. We know he can do it. So what's his plan? In fact, I think if there's ever a question that we needed an answer to, this is the question. Because this is one of those questions that... We'll go home after Sunday church and we'll get into our lives and this question's still there. You know, it's like, okay, but like, I see this, but God, what are you going to do about this? And, and there's a very unlikely story in the Gospels that actually does, I think, give us an incredible answer. And so I want to suggest that although you've probably read or maybe you've heard someone else read the passage that we're going to go through this morning, you may not have actually grasped the significance of that passage. You may have, you may have read it, you may have heard it, and maybe you've just only thought about it in one way. So I want to set the scene for this, the scripture that we're going to go into today. Here's the scene. So this is in the Gospels. It's the first century. It's Israel. This is the scene. It's been 400 years since there has been a prophet in Israel. And nationally speaking, they have been conquered and reconquered. And internally, their leaders are split between multiple factions, each with some very different ideas about what it means to be the people of God. And people, and not, people are not getting along. And it doesn't take long to realize that in this environment, things have gone really, really sideways. The, the body count of the sick and the sickly is skyrocketing. And foreign taxes are, are difficult, but they are absolutely crushing the poor. And so basic staples like food are really elusive for widows and orphans. And there are inwardly tormented people everywhere you go. They are afflicted by evil spirits that are associated with the worship of twisted gods in horrifying rituals. And then speaking of religion, the group of people that is supposed to be leading Israel in faithfulness to God and in justice amongst each other is more concerned with holding on to some kind of political power than they are actually concerned with living rightly. And in fact, bribery, weak and twisted teaching, twisting the Sabbath to use it for personal gain, these things are, are common and people are just a little bit disenfranchised. And so in the middle of this, this is the scene, this is what's going on in national Israel, and in the middle of this, the word begins to spread, there's a stir, guys, the, there's a prophet, a prophet has come, and maybe, and maybe not just a prophet, 
because he's doing more than proclaiming God's word and teaching scripture. Because after all of the, someone needs to do something about this moments in their world, this guy named Jesus begins to perform these supernatural acts. He's healing people. He's feeding the poor. It reminds them all of another mighty prophet named Elisha. And they say, okay, God's doing something. Now, in the middle of that, that's when this story takes place. And so I want to read to you from Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. And you can read, follow with me on the screen if you like. And it just says, That evening, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the east side of the sea. So they, they left the crowd, and his disciples started across the lake with, with him in the boat, and some other boats followed along. And suddenly a storm struck the lake. And waves started splashing into the boat. It was about to sink. And Jesus was in the back of the boat with his head on the pillow. He was asleep. His disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to drown? Jesus got up and he ordered the wind and the waves to be quiet. The wind stopped. Everything was calm. Jesus asked his disciples, Why were you afraid? Don't you have any faith? And now they were more afraid than ever and said to each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now this is a passage I think Christians turn to for comfort all the time. They usually find comfort by using this as a metaphor. Ah yes, like the storms of my life. There's more going on in this story than metaphor. I don't know if you've ever noticed the way that Mark tells this story, and especially the the way that Mark chooses to end it. He actually ends the story by emphasizing, and now they were more afraid than ever. And you have to ask yourself, why are they more terrified now? Why are they more terrified after Jesus calms the storm than they were during the storm? During the storm, they wait like, Jesus, don't you care? We are all going to die. He speaks to the sea. It obeys him, and it's calm. They're more afraid now. I don't know if you've caught that. And there's a clue in the story, by the way, if you want to figure out why. Because what did they call him in the story? When they woke him, they said, teacher... Teacher, don't you care? Like, they, they have no, keep in mind, these are very good Jewish people, and they have a category for someone like Jesus who's doing what Jesus is doing. He's a teacher, he's a rabbi, perhaps he's a prophet because we've seen him do some mighty deeds. So it's like Elisha, right? Like, that's your category. Like, oh my goodness, it's been 400 years since we've had a prophet, and now there's this prophet because we see these mighty deeds. And so it makes sense, like, okay, you're the man of God, you're the prophet, um, teacher, this is not going well, could you talk to God? He doesn't talk to God. If you've got a category here of what you think he's supposed to do, he's a prophet, that's the only category they had. And he doesn't bow his head and pray. Now, here's here's the thing. We've already heard the story. We already sang songs this morning that worship Jesus as God Almighty, but the disciples don't know this. 
And as they are fearful for their lives, the person they think is a mere mortal, they think, okay, well, he's the prophet. He'll just be like, God, could you please? He actually commands the seas, and the seas obey him. Why are they so terrified because if you're Jewish this is as big as it gets you've seen this before in fact in all of Israel's story there is only one person who speaks to the seas and they obey his command and it is not a mere mortal it is Yahweh it is God himself now do you understand why they're terrified they thought they were getting in the boat with a teacher they thought maybe it was a prophet. But nobody was prepared to be in a boat with God Almighty. It's no wonder they're terrified. This is their Isaiah moment. Oh my goodness, we're dead. Woe is me. I thought you were a man. I was, I was, I was joking with you yesterday. I was taught, are you telling me that I have been in the presence of God? Now, it may surprise you to know that the Jewish community in the first century, in that community, there was no expectation that the Messiah who would come to them would ever be God. See, we take that for granted in the Christian tradition because we worship Jesus as God. But what was the divisiveness of the whole thing? The whole divisiveness was, well, God can't become a person. Like, there's no concept, there's, and there is no way a first century Jew is going to come up with the idea that, well, yes, this prophet actually turns out to be God. That's, that's blasphemy. It's not going to happen. Why does Jesus get crucified anyways? He claims to be God. They're not okay with this. There's no expectation. They're not looking in the Old Testament reading and saying, ah, I see where God says he'll become a human being and come to us. That's not there. Instead, when he comes... It completely shatters their paradigm of reality. How is this happening? See, for them, all of a sudden, you learn something about God that you didn't know in the face of sin and sickness and death and torment and oppression. What is God's plan to fix all of this stuff? He shows up. It doesn't matter that nobody is expecting him. He's coming, the God of the universe who absolutely refuses to abandon his creation. Make no mistake, there is no rebellion too big or no, and no evil too dark. God says, I'm coming for you. And when you get that, like when you start understanding the significance of this, it changes everything because whether you are the stumbling disciple in the boat that's beside Jesus who's just doing his best but getting it wrong half the time or whether you are the demon-afflicted man in the tombs that Jesus is actually on his way to deliver, regardless of who you are in the story, the result is the same. You didn't ask God to come you didn't even know you could ask God to come. Completely by surprise, God has moved into your neighborhood simply because he loves you. Jesus didn't wait to hear his disciples' best speech. Because if you get like a heads up, you'll probably, like I would be writing a really, contra so God, I am so sorry. 
for when I told that joke yesterday at dinner in front of you, I didn't know you were God then, and um, I'm rather embarrassed for the jokes centered around bodily functions I was making while we were eating. Please don't hurt me, you know? Like, we would do that. He doesn't wait for their best repentant speech. He's literally, I wish we had time to get all the way into the story. He's actually going to a non-Jewish region where there is a man who is so afflicted by demons, he lives in tombs and cuts himself. And Jesus is on his way. He has great compassion. He's going there to free this man. I mean, my goodness, that tells you something about the heart of God. He's not, he, he's not, he's not even just sticking around just like, well, you know, you Jewish people, you got the scriptures, you understand. I was like, no, no, I'm coming to, to help. I'm coming to set free. Because he loves. He's not waiting for proof that that man afflicted by evil spirits was really sure that I was, oh, he's quite sure he's, gonna, he's really going to clean up his act. You know, he wants to change. He's not waiting for that. God shows up and his mere presence becomes the undoing of evil and sin and death. And when you understand this story, it does not take long for you to begin to connect the dots that in Jesus, God himself moves into the neighborhood and that changes everything. It changes everything. The fact that he just moves into the neighborhood presumptively. So why are we talking about this today? Because this year begins, this, this you know, School year, I should say. The September, I, I teach at a college, so to me, September's the beginning of the year, too. In this core value series, the, word, the letter O is for the word outreach. And I'll tell you, as, as a church, we didn't just like, come up with, like, well, we should throw outreach in there. That's a pretty trendy good word. All the cool churches are doing a little bit of outreach, so we should probably throw one in, you know, have some of that. No. Listen, this is the DNA of the church so of course it's the value of this church god's mission of outreach is not actually something he does it is who he is by his very nature and so it only makes sense then that his followers people like us who are being transformed into his likeness by the holy spirit would then also be transformed into his likeness that we ought to have a self-understanding that we are sent people because we serve a sent god that would make sense if we are going to become like him that we would look just like him. And historically, this is what the church has always done when it has been at its best. Without waiting to be asked, Christians were the ones who moved into new neighborhoods and fed the poor. They founded hospitals. They articulated the basis of basic human rights, funded orphanages and gospel missions, and then they invited people to come and know this Jesus who led them to these things. That's just history. That's why you should read your church history. See, those things, those are not programs. They are identities. This is the kind of people we are because that's the kind of God we follow. And it's precisely the identity that God actually calls us to fully embrace in our lives today. So here's what you need to do. You need to sign up, and not with a pen, but with your heart. Not to a program, to an identity. 
Because for too long, I think Christians have tended to think about outreach as it's this thing that, man, if I just had a little bit more margin in my life, if I just had a little bit more time, like if I just, if I just wasn't so squeezed, I, I, I would participate in that thing, in that program. I would just I'd add a little outreach if I could. But that's not... That's not what God is calling us to do at all. And in fact, here's what you actually need to do. You need to abandon some very unchristian thinking if that's the way your head's working right now. Your job is not to be a really, really good person who comes to church every week and believes all the right ideas. In fact, that is profoundly unchristian in its perspective. That's not the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic is I try, real, I try really hard to be good. I come to church. I don't miss a Sunday. And don't worry, I'm believing all the right stuff. I'm checking all the boxes. Oh, yeah, believe that. Sign me up on that. That new statement of faith, already got it tattooed. <laughs> it's real long, so it's, it's on both my legs. But, you know, like, I don't know. Like, this is not it. It's not close. Listen, that's not your job. Your job is to follow Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people who say, I am following Jesus with my eyes, like I'm watching him do stuff. No, 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 with your feet. See, that's what it means. Your job is to follow Jesus and look like Jesus and be like Jesus, and that's what it actually means to be a Christian, is to follow Jesus and look like Jesus. So when we look at what Jesus did, he came, nobody asked he just came. It means that moving into the neighborhoods that God has marked for your residence is the calling of your life. And here's the thing. Because Jesus is the Lord of the entire world, he has marked every neighborhood and every workplace and every school and every market for exactly that purpose that you should move in and declare his glory, that your presence should begin to change everything. To say it another way, there is not a single square inch of dirt on this planet that does not belong to him, and there is not a single human being on this planet who does not desperately need him. So you are a sent person. And so your answer to that big question when you see all of the stuff that is going on and it's a mess, your answer to what is God's plan to fix all of this is actually his plan is to send you. Because in the same way that the Father sent the Son to love these orphans and feed the poor and deliver the tormented and heal the sick and proclaim, proclaim the good news, so he sends you. Because whether it is a stumbling college student in a bar downtown or an addiction-afflicted person living in a shelter, whether it is a global worker that we stand behind as a church or the community food bank right here in Peterborough, whether it is a single parent who just needs a little bit of extra help shoveling her driveway because she's working two jobs and trying to juggle things, or whether it is the co-worker who is going through a hard time and desperately needs some support, the result is the same, and this is what it is. They didn't ask you to come. They didn't even know they could ask for you to come. And completely by surprise, God is moving you into their neighborhood simply because he wants to love them through you. That's the ethic of followers of Jesus. 
So friends, this is why we have this like O value at Calvary Church, this outreach value. We love because he loved. We send because he sent. We give because he gave. We are a move into the neighborhood type church because he is a move into the neighborhood type God. And when you have dozens of clusters of people in this church who are postured towards outreach, who are are actually stoking this flame, this passion for mission and outreach in their own lives, in their own social circles, then the organized work of our church actually only exists for one purpose. And that is just to coordinate all of our individual efforts for maximum impact. That's really it. That's it. We could combine our finances to support a missions worker really well. We could combine our efforts to put on a block party that makes a huge impact. We could combine our kitchens to cook for those in need. Because we believe in outreach, not because it's it's not this program, it's not this thing. It's like, well, we're going to do this thing, you know, we're checking the box, please sign up. It's, It's not that. We're trying to coordinate the missional impulse that God has placed in every believer to maximum impact for our community. And that's what your job is to sign up, not with a pen, with your heart. To engage and to see what is God speaking to you through the Spirit. How is he leading you to express the identity of Jesus showing up when nobody asked? Bobby, if you guys want to come back, it's, I'm, I'm out of things to say, so, you know. Tell you what, the, the Jesus-centered church looks a lot like Jesus. It is sent to lost people who are not actually looking for him. And when we choose that together, I think what you'll find is that we will make an unmistakable difference in our community. If you're able, would you, would you stand if you're able? I would love to just pray for you and, and bless you as we conclude our time this morning. Father, we are so profoundly aware of the radical nature of your identity, that around every corner you surprise us, we keep putting you in boxes, you destroy those boxes, you show up when we weren't even looking for you. And God, I just pray that, Lord, the illumination of your word, that as we understand what was going on in scripture, that you would just use this to radically transform the perspectives that guide our ethics in the world. God, that we would catch your heart that we would look like you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. We're going to conclude our service with a time of worship. And um, b- before, before I close, what I would love to do, this is, just, this is just my tradition, I would love to, to give you a blessing. In ancient times, when a person wanted to receive, or sorry, when a person wanted to give a blessing, from God. They would raise their hands like this, and those who wanted to receive the blessing would do the same. And I would just invite you, if you would like to receive a blessing from God this morning, to raise your hands. May the radical and scandalous love of God mark your life. May your eyes be opened to see the opportunities that he places before you, and may the world we live in be transformed because we are bold enough to move into the neighborhoods God has marked for us. Amen.